Hey team, welcome to The World's Last Night. This is James Thayer. Today I'm going to be actually talking about alcohol, drinking. Um, I'm going to clear up some misconceptions uh, about that. I'm going to give you the mere Christianity version of what does the Bible say about drinking. And I'm also going to give you my three rules for drinking. So I might actually start there and then get into the scripture so, first off, I should say that to many of my friends, including my wife, I can seem like a contradiction when it comes to alcohol, in that I love whiskey. I love various liquors and mixed drinks, but I have never been intoxicated before. So, people who know me, they know when they come over to my house, I'm always offering them alcohol of some sort. Jack Daniels, usually, maybe a Jack and Coke. I have one buddy, he comes over and he always wants a Long Island iced tea, so I got to break out five different alcohols. And I, I go and I buy that stuff just for these people. Now, I myself uh, enjoy alcohol also, as I just mentioned, but for the amount that I bring it up in conversation, invite people to partake, and all of that, it seems to some people like I could be an alcoholic. And my wife likes to joke about that with people too. You know, I'll be like, oh, hey, you can come over. I'll make you a drink, whatever, bringing it up. Um, and she'll be like, he sounds like an alcoholic, but trust me, he's not. And the truth is, um, I have good reasons for never having been drunk before in my life, even though I, I enjoy drinking frequently. And I can really say there's two. One is an experience I had, my very first experience with uh, people who were intoxicated. And then the second one would be the three rules that I've come up with, or I should better say have been imparted to me, upon reading the works of G.K. Chesterton, for example. So let me tell you the story about the first time I ever came in contact that I can remember, my earliest memory of it, with someone who was intoxicated. And basically, I was at the beach. I was probably 7th grade, maybe 8th grade. You can tell I was sheltered. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't come in contact with this until 7th or 8th grade. Um, but I was at the beach, and I met a random guy there, and we became fast friends. And I, some, I actually do this, I think, a lot on vacations. I'll meet some sort of friend. And he had Halo which, if you don't know, is a video game. I love Halo. I used to play it all the time. At this point in time, they had, like, Halo 1 out, and that was it. So, uh, at the, after we end up, like, playing in the pool and stuff, he's like, hey, man, you want to come over and play Halo? I was like, oh, yeah, I want to come over and play Halo. Let me go tell my parents. I told my parents, okay, we're going to be in this room at this dude. We're going to be playing Halo. So he and I are on his back porch on the patio, you know, overlooking the ocean, we're playing Halo. It's really awesome. It's getting dark. It's getting late. And his parents come home. And his parents are completely wasted. So that's like one thing. I'm like, okay, they're just, those are drunk people. I think I'd seen drunk people up to this time. But I didn't have like interactions with them. <laughs> and the next thing I know is his mom is like coming out on the back patio, super sloshed, and like, trying to talk to him, and he, also like a 13-year-old, a 12-year-old, is yelling 
at his mom. You're drunk, mom. You're drunk. Go back in there. And she's like apologizing. She's like, I'm so sorry, Brad, or whatever his name is. I'm so sorry. I drank a lot. And he's like, you're drunk, mom. Go away. Like, you're embarrassing me. And she just kept talking. Eventually, she went away. And so I had like this look uh, of what a family, what alcohol can do within a family. And what I did see is that this boy had a, a good um, understanding of what intoxication was, unlike me, because he grew up in a family where it was acceptable. And it likewise made him lose respect for his mom to where he could talk to her like that. Like, if I talked to my mom like that, there there would be no end to the wooden spoon, you know, beating, <laughs> spanking. Um, so... <laughs> I couldn't I can't imagine that the sort of dysfunction that alcohol caused in that family. So whenever I finally did turn 21, I I tasted alcohol growing up here and there. My my dad would give me a sip or my mom would give me a sip of like a margarita or, you know, champagne on New Year's, that kind of stuff. Whenever I turned 21 though, my brother took me out to Barley's, which is an amazing bar in Knoxville. Highly recommended. It. It's just sort of chill, good pizza, good beer. And he bought everyone who went with us uh, beer, including he bought me and um, a mixed beverage, mixed drink. And he let me try everyone's beer. And I found out I didn't really like beer. <laughs> but eventually I came to really, really like whiskey. There's just something about it. it's like warm. Some of them are smoother than others. There's a little bit of like pain that you muster through at the beginning if it hits like the back of your throat a little slight burning sensation that's your body telling you don't drink this stuff i'm sure but i eventually grew to love the taste of it and it's just sort of like it's more of like a traditional mature thing to drink in my opinion same with beer same with wine everyone has their favorites but alcohol in general seems to like a more of like a traditional way to like get in touch with your ancestors you know what I'm saying? So, in any case, that's sort of like my experience with alcohol. And going back to that sort of time I played Halo, that was my negative experience towards intoxication. And I decided I never want to be intoxicated. And when I was in college, I remember like explaining to a roommate of mine why. Because my roommate was an alcoholic. Like, legitimate. If he wasn't drunk, <clears throat> he was high. If he wasn't high, he was drunk. I told him why I didn't drink. And, uh, or like that anyways, <laughs> um, based on the fact that I didn't want to like lose control of myself. For me, my personality, I, I like being in control. My wife even talks about like, I don't let strangers drive me around. I would rather spend the gas money and drive myself. When I go to a party, I don't like other people driving me to the party. I have to take my own car so I can leave at any time I want. So it's like this control thing. And at the same time, I don't want to be in uh, out of control of my body. That's why I don't even like NyQuil, for example. <clears throat> so I'm very fortunate I had that kind of built-in, I guess, fear of losing control. <clears throat> and so that has probably aided me. But aside from sort of that memory and self-control things or just being in control... I've actually come up with sort of three rules, and these three rules are rules I'm going to teach my children. It's going to be my little advice for drinking alcohol, whether you like beer, wine, or liquor. 
These are my three rules to making sure you are drinking to the glory of God. And that's what the Bible says. Whether, whatever you eat, whether eating or drinking, um, do so to the glory of God. <clears throat> and these rules are going to protect you, but they're also going to make alcohol be your servant to where it does not rule over you. It does not have an ability to change you emotionally or reinforce bad emotional behaviors, <clears throat> but rather you can use it to um, better your yourself to be able to celebrate, for example, um, as a way, as a tradition, and in other words, you master it. So here are the three rules that I have. No, number one, rule number one, never drink alone. Never drink alone. And I, I stick to that rule so stringently, my wife knows it, that just tonight, and the reason why I even decided to do this podcast, I asked her if she wanted <laughs> to drink some uh, Whisper Creek Tennessee Sipping Cream, because I know she'll drink that. And she automatically knew it was because I wanted to have a couple sips of Tennessee Honey Jack Daniels. So she's like, okay, yeah, for you, I, I will drink a little bit so you're not drinking alone. Because that's one of my rules. I can't drink alone. Why? Why would you not want to drink alone? Well, when you drink alone... You don't have any other people speaking into your life to tell you that maybe you're drinking too much, for example. you If you are to go too far and say you became intoxicated, you have no one that no kind of safety net there. But also, usually I, when people drink alone, they're usually down on something. They're sad about something. And you don't want to associate alcohol with feelings of sadness. So that brings me to rule number two. You only drink when you have something to celebrate. Now, that can be as complex as I just had a baby son, baby daughter. I'm celebrating. Come celebrate with me. I'm cracking open the champagne. Have a drink with me. It can be as big, high-end as that. It can be as small as just, hey, I'm very content in my life right now. There's nothing that is making me stressed out, anxious, or sad. And it's been a good day. So I'm going to celebrate, and I'm going to have something to drink. So the important thing, though, is you're not drinking out of sadness or grief. You can't come home from work. I've had a really crummy day, so I'm going to drink some beer. No, you are then associating alcohol with feelings of depression. And as such... You will go back to it and back to it, and it'll become a crutch. It'll become a way to drown misery. Funny enough, this is actually referenced in Proverbs 31. You know, your, your average teetotaling Christian has a real huge issue with Proverbs 31 and alcohol. And I'm not, I'm not even going to go into it because when I get to that, I want to go into it kind of deep. But right now, I'm not going to. But it's really funny. It's a really funny verse. They talk about the Proverbs 31 woman. Well, the Proverbs 31 man is very different. But even so, I would never want to associate feelings of grief, sadness, or whatever with any sort of drug. Any, anything that could possibly rewire my brain 
Um, so that's why I personally, one of my rules is I only drink when I have something to celebrate. Never whenever I'm sad, depressed, angry, upset, dealing with grief, anxiety, or anything like that. Stress, nope, no. So my third rule is I only have one drink. Okay, so probably lost a lot of people there because a lot of people have higher tolerances than me. My buddy Ethan, you know, he can have... I've never really seen him intoxicated, I guess. I've seen him a little bit, I guess, um, relaxed is a good way to put it. But I've never actually really seen him intoxicated, and I've seen him have a couple drinks. And I'm talking like mixed drinks. But for me personally... I've seen that edge before, and I never want to cross it. And basically, I know my physiology, I can handle one drink. That's it. And I'm talking, once again, a mixed drink. I could, I could handle more beer if I enjoyed it, I'm sure, because the alcohol content is less. But even wine, it would just be like one glass of wine. If I don't really like wine that much. But even so, um, those are my rules. Those are my three rules. And I think that they really do a good job of... Making alcohol a gift, a good thing, a fun thing, um, a traditional thing, an activity to do with friends whenever you're enjoying things and in a good mood, rather than being your slave master or something you go to to cope with the difficulties of life. Because those kinds of things, you don't bring that to the feet of alcohol, you bring that to the feet of God, right? As Christians, that's what you do. So let's talk a little bit about what does God think about alcohol? Or what does the Bible say about drinking? So, you might be shocked, if you're not a Christian, you might be shocked to find out there's not a ban on drinking in the Bible. You're not going to find that anywhere. So why do several Christians not drink? They're called teetotalers, right? Teetotaler is someone who abstains from drinking. It has nothing to do with tea. <laughs> it just means abstaining from drinking. It's not spelled like tea, T-E-A, so... I have many friends who are teetotalers, and they respect me, and I respect them um, for their convictions. But So why do people do it? Well, they might have some conviction. They may have a family member who died of alcoholism, or they've seen that, that woman who came home you know, that I saw when I was playing Halo, and they might say, no, I don't, ever, I don't even want to try indulging in that. They might have a history of alcoholism themselves, and they're like, nope, I can't handle it. Me, myself, and I, I'm predisposed to that addiction. Can't do it. Um, they might just grow up in a traditional household where that wasn't something that they partook in. Mormons don't drink alcohol, for example. They don't even drink caffeine. Um, so there's certain sects of Christianity, um, certain even Baptists. You know, some Baptists don't do it. <clears throat> um, I don't know about strict Pentecostals. But let's just say this. There's various denominations that will not drink alcohol, and they have their reasons and their convictions. But they're not reasons that are uh, the Bible bans it. You're not going to find anywhere in the Bible it says don't drink. And in fact, you will find times where the, the scripture encourages you to drink. <laughs> so um, it's, it's hard to square that with a theological argument. Now, uh, Jews, same thing. They can drink alcohol. There's nothing in, in their tradition or scripture that would bar them from drinking alcohol. Muslims, on the other hand, they can't have alcohol. Muslims practically can't have anything. Um, the Jews can't have bacon, neither can Muslims. There's really good, solid freedom found in Christianity when it comes to this topic. But, I will say, 
that Romans 14 has some excellent advice for living with other Christians who have different convictions than you. So I'm going to actually read a little bit of Romans 14, and then we're going to talk about it. So here we go. I'm skipping way ahead from Genesis to Romans. This is the New Testament. This is a book we know is written by Paul to the Romans, possibly while he was in prison. And verse uh, 1 of chapter 14 says, Accept anyone who is weak in faith. But don't argue about doubtful issues. One person believes he may eat anything, but one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not criticize one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to criticize another's household slave? Before his own Lord he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So take this idea about eating and extrapolate it further. Paul is basically giving this example. It's an example. He gives us several others here that I'll read in a second, but gives an example of someone that won't eat. Now, another uh, example of this would actually be people who won't eat food that have been sacrificed to idols. Now, as you and I have been studying, idols are false gods. Well, during uh, early Christian era, you know, in Rome, people served false gods at household idols, and they would literally do burnt sacrifices to these false gods. And then when he came over to visit them after this food's been sacrificed to this false god, you as a Christian are visiting this pagan person and they're offering you this food. Now, you might have this conscious issue where you're like, well, should I eat that? I don't know. Should I eat that or not? Because that's been sacrificed to a false god. I don't want to partake in that ritual. Paul, elsewhere in scripture, will basically say, yeah, eat it. Just eat it to the glory of, of the one true God. But there's other people, especially if you were a pagan previously, and you previously worshipped that false God, and now you're a Christian, and your family invites you back over, and you don't want to be uh, seen as indulging in this worship of this false God you used to worship. You might have a really conflicting spirit about this, right? You might say, oh man, like, I can't do this. There's no way I can go back to that life after I know the one true God. Paul says, okay, that, that person's faith is weak, and he's not saying that to insult you. So anyone who's tuning out because I, I'm equating weak faith to abstaining from eating or drinking, he is not saying that to insult. That's just how he's describing it. So he says, okay, well, that person whose faith is weak, you know, um, so in his, his description, he says one who eats only vegetables. He's not against vegetarians. I can't believe I have to say these things. He's not yelling at, he's not arguing vegetarianism is wrong. But he is saying people who have the conviction where they can't do something that scripturally is okay to do, he basically says, you know what? Let them do it. Let them indulge in that conviction and not eat or, or drink or whatever because what does that hurt? And he basically says, you know, there's someone else's master. Or I'm sorry, they serve the same master. And who are you to criticize this master's servant? Talk about God's servant. Who are you to criticize them for it? Look down upon them for their weak faith. You shouldn't. shouldn't make fun of them or anything like that. You should actually, as we're going to find out, able them and, and help them in their conviction. But then secondly, he says, well, you know, to the person who can eat, the person who will eat the food sacrifice idols, the person who is a believer and drinks alcohol, well, you who have weak faith, don't criticize your brother for the freedom that they indulge in. It's not a sin. They're not sinning. So I'm going to keep reading, but I hope this is making sense. But as I keep reading, it hopefully it makes even more sense. So verse five, one person considers one day to be above another 
Someone else considers every day to be the same. Each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day, observes it to the Lord. Whoever eats, eats to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is to the Lord that he does not eat, yet he thanks God. So he gave us another example. He basically was saying, holidays. You know, some people hold certain days to be above other days. And they celebrate them. Well, and we're talking, he has a pagan audience. They celebrate all kinds of stuff, right? He basically says, well, that person who celebrates it now celebrates it to the Lord. And the person who abstains from celebrating it, he does that to the Lord. I dated a girl who didn't celebrate Christmas. I thought it was weird, um, but I went along with it. I was just like, okay, that's your conviction. Won't celebrate Christmas. When I went over to her family during Christmas time, they had a quote unquote family holiday where they still passed out gifts, but they didn't celebrate the birth of Jesus. It was weird, guys, but that was their conviction. So Paul is basically telling me, well, don't screw up their conviction. Um, they're doing that to God, right? They're abstaining. It's their conviction. They're abstaining for God. In the same way, I celebrate Christmas. My family is big on it. And that same girl came to my family's Christmas and it probably overwhelmed her because our Christmases are usually really big. But she would not be able to criticize us for our faith in celebrating this holiday. That's what Paul is saying. So he says, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and came to life for this, that he might rule over both the dead and the living. But you, why do you criticize your brother? Or you, why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So um, here we go. I'm skipping ahead. Oh, good gracious, where is it? I'm actually not going to skip ahead. I'm going to keep reading because that's the best way to put it in context. So verse 12, uh, 13. Therefore, let us no longer criticize one another, but instead decide not to put a stumbling block or a pitfall in your brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. For if your brother is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. By what you eat, do not destroy that one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves a Messiah in this way is accepted to God and approved by men. I'm not going to read the rest because I'm about to read the entire chapter and I want to dedicate time to that. But he is basically saying, he says, this, this is in parentheses. He says, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Guys, this includes alcohol. Alcohol in itself, it's not unclean. Nothing's unclean in itself. You're going to find Messianic Jews. These are Jews that believe in Jesus, and yet they still hold to the dietary restrictions. That's their conviction, but it is a, it's a conviction of weak faith. It's not what Christ preached. Christ preached that things weren't unclean anymore also, and Paul is reaffirming that in itself. But you're not supposed to look down upon those people for their convictions in the same way. They can't criticize you as a Christian for eating food that the Old Testament would call uncleanness. But, and, you know, Christians that don't drink can't criticize you for drinking. This is what Paul is saying. So, but I think this is key. He says, don't put a stumbling block in front of your brother. So here we go. I'm going to talk a little bit about how do you, if you are a Christian who believes alcohol is totally fine like me, how do you associate with Christians that don't? And... Well, the truth is, you treat them like alcoholics. <laughs> you would not um, drink in front of an alcoholic. It's uncharitable. It's tempting them. In the same way, you 
don't drink in front of someone who has a conviction that drinking is sinful. It's tempting them. Paul is saying, don't, don't be a stumbling block, which is, you know, something that someone would trip over. Don't hurt someone in their walk of faith by tempting them with alcohol. Um, just because you can drink it doesn't mean that they have the same conviction. So that's just about propriety. And that translates into, into every area of Christian freedom. It really does. So finally, what is sinful? James, you've been talking about what's not sinful this whole time. What does the Bible say that could possibly be sinful about alcohol? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, the Bible clearly condemns what it calls debauchery. Clearly condemns what it calls being intoxicated. So there is a fine line between drinking alcohol and being intoxicated by alcohol. Now, when you're intoxicated by alcohol, you're not in control of your vessel. Remember, you've been bought by the blood of Christ. That means you are not your own. You are a servant of God, and your body is a temple that he lives in. You want to take care of it. Secondly, whenever you get to that point where you are intoxicated, you don't have any control anymore. And you can bring shame to yourself and others, as in the case of that young boy who uh, played Halo with. You can also make grave mistakes like drinking and driving and end up killing someone. So the Bible does clear, it clearly condemns what it calls debauchery, which would be an overindulgence of alcohol to the point where you are not in control of yourself. So you need to know your limits because when you cross that limit, then you are sinning. That's the point that drinking alcohol becomes a sin. Up until that point, biblically speaking, not a sin. And in fact, Paul, he tells um, Timothy, who's a young man that Paul disciples in scripture. He says, look, I hear you've been ill. You've been getting ill. Quit drinking just water. You need to drink wine also. So here's Paul actually encouraging someone to drink alcohol. People like to argue, well, that wine was diluted more than today's wine. It has less alcohol in it. Yeah, okay. That just brings back to the same point, which is you're not supposed to cross the line of intoxication, whether your wine is 3% or 16% alcohol. The point is um, it's not sinful to drink it and... Secondly, it does become sinful if you let it rule over you instead of you ruling it. And then it's a wonderful, great thing. God made it. It's good. It's a wonderful, great thing. Jesus used it to show his covenant. The cup was filled with wine, you know, at the at communion. So um, now why did Paul tell Timothy to start drinking some wine because of illness? It's because Water was far more frequently contaminated back then. He was worried that Timothy was drinking contaminants in his water, whereas fermented drinks were, were clean. So you didn't have to worry about germs and stuff because the alcohol kills it. So just a little tidbit there. So I hope this has been enlightening to people who wanted to know what does the Bible have to say about alcohol. But secondly, to my future children, if you get to listen to this, I hope that you live by those three rules they come from a lot of your dad reading a lot of old theologians' work um, to figure out exactly how can you live righteously but still enjoy what God has set aside for you to be able to enjoy. And that includes alcohol whenever it's legal for you to drink it. Now, another thing is the Bible clearly says you're supposed to respect the law of the land. So don't indulge in it until you are of age. Right now, that's 21 years old. Um, but that's it. So until the next episode, this is James with The World's Last Night. <laughs> <laughs>